The following program is part of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations China podcast series. For more information on the National Committee, visit us at www.ncuscr.org or connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, or Weibo. My name is Margot Landman. I am Senior Director for Education Programs at the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. Joining me today on the NCUSCR China podcast is Rob Schmitz, American Public Media's Marketplace China correspondent based in Shanghai. His book, Street of Eternal Happiness, was just published by Crown Publishers in New York. Rob, thanks for taking the time to talk with me today. Well, thank you very much for having me, Margo. You are an economics reporter. What made you de- decide to write a book focusing on the lives of some of the people who live on your street in Shanghai? Well, part of my job as an economics reporter is to report economics from the ground, and that is to talk to normal, everyday people about the money they make, as well as the larger economic, the macroeconomic、uh, things that are happening in China's economy, and what, how that impacts their lives personally. You know, radio is a very personal. Medium, and so we tell very intimate kind of human stories, and so I'm trying to tell the story of China's economy through individuals. So this this book project has a lot to do with with that. It's very you know, and, and it started obviously as a radio series that lasted about a year, and midway through, I realized, you know, a lot of the stories that they were telling me, a lot of the folks that I was focusing on, the single street in Shanghai. They weren't really local stories. These were kind of interesting, dramatic, universal kind of stories that that I thought would would work really well in a book. Who struck you as the most surprising or interesting person you interviewed for the book, and why? That's a tough question because all of them struck me as surprising at one point or another. I think that the most surprising thing that happened during the course of reporting the book. Um, happened actually as I was reporting the the radio series, were that a friend of mine、uh, who's Chinese and who makes a habit of going to these antique junk shops in the former French concession and buying like random things. She had bought a shoebox full of letters, and these letters were from the 1950s through the 1990s. They were between a husband and his wife, and the husband was in Qinghai Province, and he was in a labor through reform prison camp. Um, he had been uh, arrested uh, and uh, sentenced as a capitalist, as, 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 a, as a capitalist. And this was in 1957 when capitalists were being rounded up during the anti-rightus campaign. And he was sent out there. He left、uh, seven children and his wife. And these letters talk about their story through. You know, it, it's really compelling stuff. And when I, when when she heard my story, she said, "All of these letters." Are addressed to the street that you're focusing on, Changlulu, and I, I looked at them, and it was actually it was a Chinese New Year Eve, New Year's Eve, and we were just going through these letters, and they were just amazing. And I asked her, "Can I, can I borrow these?" She said, "No, that's why I brought them. I want you to do a story on this." And so that that was surprising. What was even more surprising was that I found a living descendant of this family, and even more surprising. Is that he wasn't in China, he was here in New York City. And how did you find him? I found him by going to I, after I had read all the letters. I wanted to understand their story before I started pursuing them. 
I had everything sort of clear in my head, at least as clear as I could through these, these letters, because it, obviously it's not the whole history of the family. But I had mapped everything out, and I simply went to the address where these letters were originally mailed to, because that's really the only thing that I had. And I knocked on the door, and someone answered. It was an old eye, and I asked her, hey, do you know this family? She said, oh, sure I know this family. They're my landlords. And I said, well, which one's your landlord? She said, well, the son's my landlord. I said, okay, because the, the son was the youngest child, was the, actually the second youngest child in the family, the, the only boy. Second and youngest? Yes. There was the, one later? There was a young, the youngest child, the baby sister. She uh, was given up for adoption. But I thought she was older than he was. No, she was she was the youngest. Oh. Yeah, so she, she ended up, uh, being given up for adoption, and uh, she, she, you know, that that obviously that was a really painful part for their family. Yeah. So he, uh, the son, uh, and, I, and I asked her, "Well, do you happen to know where they are?" She said, "Well, they're in New York," but she didn't have their. She wouldn't give her phone. She, she probably had her phone, his phone number. She wouldn't give it to me. So I, I did a search in. Uh, I figured they were in Flushing, so I did a search in, in Flushing on their name, and I found uh, I, I found the mom called them and, and there they were this skips in my order of questions but you found him and he's yeah. taking English classes and GED classes close to 60 years old and when I was reading the story of his family the husband and wife the not knowing his children he comes back in 1973 meets tries to meet them at the train station and they don't even recognize each other, yeah. struck me as incredibly sad. But this son in Flushing seems full of optimism and says he can reinvent himself in the United States. What does that tell us, if anything? I think I think for, for him, he... He's a kind of guy that, well, first of all, he's the only son in the family. And his job growing up was to make sure that his mom was okay. And that's a pretty big duty because dad's not there. Um, and mom you know, obviously has all these children to, to take care of. And they put a lot of the resources into his education mm -hmm. because he's the only son. I think he took that duty very seriously. Um, he didn't get married. Um, he could have gotten married. He didn't. Um, and he decided to take care of her. So I think I think that that sense of duty for him, I think it almost makes it so that he has to be optimistic about things. I was startled as I was reading the book by the amount of violence. Not street crime kind of violence, but domestic violence the rural women talking about everybody everybody knows somebody who's drunk pesticide to kill themselves the child at the age of 11 trying to slit his wrists mm. what do we make of this what does it tell us about contemporary china well i think there is a lot of violence I, but i think i think it's something that isn't talked about a lot i think it's talked about when you actually ask these questions and you get to know people. Um, you know, this Chinese society, especially in rural, rural China, we're talking about here because both the instances you're mentioning happened in, in rural China. 
you know, life is life is not easy in rural China. Um, uh, the way that that society is ordered is, is very, you know, obviously men, men are, are are sort of in charge, and uh, when things go wrong, uh, you know, they can they can be prone to violence. So the violence that we're talking about in the in the book and, and from my characters, oftentimes they they start with men. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, in in Zhao's case, Zhao Shiling, the, the flower shop owner, you know, her husband beats her, um, just like most of the men in her village uh, beat their wives. Um, a lot of the men in her village have more than one wife. Mm-hmm. You know, they have maybe a mistress or two, depending on how much money they earn. Um, and uh, you know the the suicide that she talks about the, the fact that so many women drink pesticide in a village um, that has to do with the men in the village as well. Mm-hmm. Um, CK, a lot of his agony came from his father. Mm-hmm. His father was, was very, also very, very violent. Yeah, extremely violent man who beat his wife and was very very hard on CK um, to the point where you know he you know this was in the eighties. Yeah, the, the father and the wife um, divorced, which was really rare back then, um, and that was very difficult for CK to handle because you know his classmates would would ask him questions about it and make him feel bad about it. I mean, he was only nine, ten years old when this happened, and then at eleven, he found himself you know not wanting to live anymore, um, and so that that's you know he had a pretty miserable uh, boyhood. But what's interesting about CK is that. Later on in his life, there's there's a lot of things that are that, that turn very optimistic for him. You know, he he makes a lot of money, for example. Right? He's he's pretty smart. You know, he's he's um, he's a really good he's good at teaching himself certain things. Mm-hmm. And uh, the other thing that um, he was good at is exploring himself and exploring what he wants out of life. And once he made enough money, he starts exploring religion and spirituality. One of the themes of the book is President Xi Jinping's Chinese dream and the dreams of the people living on Changlo Lu. What what is his dream? What are their dreams? Do they mesh? Do they diverge? I think that Xi Jinping's Chinese dream um, is an effort to corral the individual dreams of, of, of Chinese people into one dream for the nation. And I think that it's a reaction to uh, a society that has a lot of people now who are dreaming beyond money. Because, you know, in the, in the 80s and 90s and even in the beginning of the 2000s, and, and still in many rural parts of China today, the biggest dream is to make money, to make enough money to actually afford the bigger things in life, Right. A lot of Chinese have have attained that goal, especially in places like Shanghai, and so now they're dreaming of bigger things, naturally. Mm-hmm. And those bigger things are much more varied, right? They're, they're, they've spread out, and I think it's difficult. Um, I think that that can and does pose a threat to the party mm-hmm. and its control over the people, uh, because suddenly all these dreams are not aligned. You know, for the for the '90s, for a good part of the '90s, everyone's dream—the party's dream, the people's dream—was all about making money. It was mm-hmm. all about improving your economic status, whether it was the country or whether it was individuals, individual Chinese. 
Now it's gone beyond that. It's gone to spirituality. It's gone to religion. It's gone to equality. It's gone to justice. It's gone in many different directions that they could never have predicted, maybe. But it's natural, and this is a natural course, a natural evolution of the society, and it's going to be interesting to see how they handle this going forward. That takes me very nicely to my next question, where I see that a lot of the characters are seeking something. Yes. Whether it's C.K. turning to Buddhism or Auntie Fu and Christianity and her absolutely harebrained investment schemes yeah. one after another, or Mayor Chen and his um, co-inhabitants, I guess. I was yeah. going to say colleagues, but that's not right. They're, uh, and flower shop owner Zhao, they're all seeking something. Yeah. And... Much of it seems very flailing against windmills. Yeah. You see it that way also? Uh, well, I think in some cases it is. I think when you look at Mayor Chen, Chen Zhongdao's mission to get his home back, that is completely a, a quixotic mission. He, he is going to fail. And in the book, I compare a lot of these things to... So they're all operating under the same system. And that system doesn't have to be the party. In some ways, it's 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 just China. It's it's a it's a it's a tr you know a system of traditions. It's a system of what your parents expect from you. If you're Chinese, it's a, it's a, it's a system. Uh, it's it's the party as well. It's a governance. But this system is there, and and I, I compare it in the book to a, a rip current of swimming in, in in waters that have a rip current. If a rip if you're swimming in waters with a rip current, it's going to pull you out. And you can let go and just get pulled out to sea, and people may never see you again. You can try and fight against that system, but you will drown. The people in my book who succeed are the ones who are able to swim at their own individual angle, but at the same time ceding a little control to the system mm -hmm. by going in that general direction, but by having their own individual path, kind of carving their own path. When you look at uh, Zhao Shiling, uh, when you look at CK, these are folks that succeed, and they succeed because they have figured it out. But there are people in this book that don't figure it out and do not adjust and are stubborn and will not adjust, mm -hmm. and they do not win. What is someone like Auntie Fu looking for? <clears throat> she sinks astounding amounts of money into schemes that seem pretty obviously implausible. But she keeps doing it. What's the motivation? She wants to fit into what she sees um, around her. You know, she's surrounded by wealth. She lives in a neighborhood so where people are making a lot of, of money. getting rich. It's about getting rich for her. You know, she grew up in a, in a generation. You know, she, she was born around uh, 1949. Uh, much like Xi Jinping, right? Around that's he's he's in the same generation, and these are the folks that grew up. You know, it's the 50th anniversary of the Cultural Revolution this week. They grew up as Red Guards or being bullied by Red Guards, mm -hmm. and worse, right? They grew up with their schools closed, not able to go to school because the Cultural Revolution had been launched, and teachers were targets as well. They grew up without making any sort of career decisions for themselves because they were sent down to the countryside. Mm -hmm. And after that 
it passed or after after Mao died, they were assigned to a factory, right? And so they hadn't made a single career decision for themselves. And then suddenly the the economy just opened up and capitalism reigned. And so these folks who had really never made decisions for themselves as far as their jobs were concerned or their paths in life suddenly had to adjust and to to make their own decisions and, and many of them couldn't do that. And so what Auntie Fu represents, I think, in this in this case is that she's of a generation that is basically lost. They're lost in this world, this new modern world of capitalism and, mm-hmm. and you know, where, where people make their own money and, and work, you know, for, for their own money. She really doesn't know how to operate. She sees a lot of wealth around her, but she doesn't know how she can get it. And that leads her to, uh, you know, these really sad and, and uh, you know, awful sort of pyramid schemes that, that, that she believes uh, will make her a lot of money and get her rich. And unfortunately, obviously, they don't. Why do you think your neighbors were so willing to talk to you? Some of them were really very open about remarkably personal things. Yeah, that's right. Um, I think I think part of the reason is that you know we I spent a lot of time with these folks. You know, we got to know each other pretty well. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of trust between us, and. Um, you know, they knew what I was working on. I made it clear from the start. Um, but I think in some ways it's inevitable that these things come on. I didn't put everything that they told me in the book. You know, there were a lot of personal things that I didn't, you know, didn't think were was appropriate for the book. Um, but what I was trying to do with their stories, you know, and that's a big responsibility to have, you know, to, to tell the story of these people and to try and tell it in a fair way. Um, I was trying to be as compassionate as I could but I also wanted to show what life is like at this point in time in China for these folks, um, the decisions that they're forced to make, their motivations, because I think it's really important um, for us on the other side of the world to understand that, um, because I think that, that China is incredibly important um, to the United States. You know, it, it's part of our future, really. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and more and more Chinese are traveling here. They're they're buying property. They're our neighbors now, and I, I think it's it behooves us to learn a lot more about them. Do you think the book will be translated and available in China? It will be translated into simplified and classical Chinese. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, so uh, we, I've I've got a contract with Shanghai Translation for the mainland, right? So, yeah, they will be translating it. And are you concerned trans- about things being left out? We've talked about that. And uh, I'm comfortable with what has been described to me as some of the problem points because some of the... And there were, there were very few of them. Uh, the problem points to me were more or less background issues. They weren't really they weren't crucial to the, the, the main narrative and the main theme of the book. Mm-hmm. And so I was okay with that. Now, had it been, if, if it had taken away one of the narratives or it, it really was destroying one of the themes, I, I, wouldn't, have, I wouldn't have agreed to it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, when I sat down with them and talked about it, um, for me, I, I, it was acceptable. It was fine. All right. We've come to the end of our time. Thank you very much for talking with me. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it.